Toronto. Neal and Fiala tag up. Neal cuts to the middle. Off to Fiala. Hit for the score! Kevin Fiala! Overtime winner! Next to Predators! The Saints have to start at Minnesota, home against New England, at Carolina, and then Miami and London before week five bye. Yikes. Yeah, Jeremy White retweeted something he posted. I don't love that. Yeah, uh, Jeremy White's a local radio guy here. He retweeted something that I think he posted the year before that essentially said, here's how the Bills' uh, schedule is going to look. Promising start despite obstacles. Uh, then, like, good. Uh, that's that's September. Then October is like a decent October. Uh, disappointing November, and then December is just like in the hunt. Like that's where they are every year. In this year, uh, if the New England league schedule is is to be believed, and I don't have any reason not to, they play like they play New England and sixteen, thirteen and sixteen. So they could have a sweet season ruined by the team that's ruined all their seasons so far. So I try not to get too freaked out about the schedule because the league changes so much from year to year. Like Carolina, yeah, Carolina, Carolina is a perfect example. Sure, Carolina was fifteen and one, and everyone last year on schedule day said, "Oh man, this is when we're playing Carolina." And yeah, and they, and they use, lost like the first seven games. You could use them as an example the year before. Weren't they one of the last place teams the year before they went to the Super Bowl? Well, they were one of the worst. Yeah, they were one of the worst playoff teams. They were like oh, that, okay. that eight and eight or sure. seven and eight hosting playoff team. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't think too much about it. Matthew Barry always talks about that when he thinks about drafting defenses. Like defenses change every year. There's too much that changes every year to ever think about that type of thing. I don't. I don't put much into it either, especially because so much of it's kind of predetermined now. Yeah, and uh, just the order you don't know. You know, a game against Detroit in Week Six—that's a really easy game. And for some reason, Matthew Stafford gets hurt Week Five. Right. Sure. You know, so how you can't flip out about it? The thing I'm most excited to find out is when the Saints are in Buffalo, and apparently, it's going to be in November sometime. It's, I would think it's definitely a bu- uh, Buffalo home game. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. And so it's not up to Week Eight. And it's probably not in December because the Bills are barely home in December because right. of the Winter Classic right. Junior Edition. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyway, uh, boy, it's going to be interesting three things because we didn't wake up expecting to have the material for the show no. that we do today. But I texted you, thank God, because these things always seem to happen they do. a half hour after we finish recording and uploading our show. And we've been having a hard enough time getting into the same room and it it would have been just our luck to get in the same room today and then but it's on our side and we'll get to it in a second it's the sabers uh sabers blew everything up today so we'll get to that in a second here's what we have on the show it's season seven episode nine april 20th 2017 uh the return of the goat uh jane levy is on the show today uh one of those people where when I send a pitch out and I say, please be on the show, these people were on. She's always one of the people where I hear back, oh, well, if it's good enough for Jane, it's sure, got to yeah. be good enough for me. Uh, it's actually her seventh time on the show, 
which is unbelievable. Wow. We've had Jane Levy on our show seven times. And uh, she starts off, I call her up to do the interview. And the first thing she said to me is, I saw a picture of Paula on Easter. It's really pretty. And I'm like, this is surreal. Yeah. Jane is very much a, you know, on Facebook as much as your mom is kind of a person. Okay. You know how parents have taken over Facebook yes. and they love it? Yep. Jane is right there. Yeah, I thought I thought yeah. Facebook a few years back was bulletproof. And the only thing that I never would have thought of was it became too popular that now moms and grandparents are on there. So kids I don't think are as much. Kids no. have flipped over to like Instagram yep. and uh, Snapchat. Mike Halford is also on the show today. He is the co-main writer at NBC.com's Pro Hockey Talk. He's a guy that I don't want to say we discovered, but a guy that like we've been putting on as he's before he got as popular as he is now. Okay, you know, and I think he got really popular here uh, because he was the one. Remember when the Ryan O'Reilly trade was happening, posting from the draft, kind of watching. Oh, people at different tables. Yeah, watching the action kind of move from table to table, and kind of was on that trade really, really well. So. Uh, we'll have Mike on. Uh, we'll obviously do book club, the Verducci book. I got an update on Verducci. Uh, and one last thing. So let's start it off with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, so the Sabres blew it up. I think Don and I would have told you yesterday that we were at least 90% sure that Dan Bilesman was not surviving. Yeah, when your general manager says things like, "Well, he's the coach today," right? Like that's never that's never a ringing endorsement. I had no inkling, no, that Tim Murray would be fired. I had no, never the thought literally never crossed my mind. Yeah, I think I'm mad about it almost a little bit. I, I think he had a plan, and I think everything has gone according to plan, minus maybe the defense. And he said, I didn't build the defense as good as I thought. But And he had, I think, a plan to rebuild it. Yeah, place. someone called up a radio show today and said, what was his mistake? Like, what did he do wrong? And the only thing I could think of, people will point to the Pesic trade. And I'm okay with people pointing to that. I know I like the numbers stuff more than you do. But Pesic isn't like a Norris-caliber defenseman over there. He's just a usable defenseman that they could have used this year. Um, and Kulikov was hurt. Right. Uh the only thing I can think of that he didn't do was fire the coach. Like, maybe he went down with the ship because he wouldn't fire the coach uh, midway through, what was their terrible month, like February or March they hit? Or, you know, he did say in his press conference that as far as he knew, he was in charge of hiring and firing coaches, and uh, maybe he found out today that that's not the case, and maybe that was a... Yeah, and if some a of those parting of ways between the two camps, if some of that stuff is true, that's scary. Like, because that just isn't going to go away. The Pagulas scare me in general. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking that. I thing. love their, I love their bank account. Yep. I don't know how much I love about him besides that. I was thinking that exact thing when I drove in today. We had a podcast about how 
the Sabres, and then the Bills eventually got the best owners we could have, like literally the best owners that were not already yep. owners, the best ones we could have picked. And I, think and I still, still feel true. that money as wise. far as money, yep. as far as their dedication, like I don't question that. People are like, oh, they raised ticket prices, so they must not care about the team. Like, I don't think those are the same thing. And look what they've done for our city. Yeah. Like we went to that game, the Blues game, me and you, or walk, I mean, just think about we walk out of the arena, we walk into a beautiful sports bar, yeah. then we walk over to a casino on a beautiful waterfront. I mean, that's all Pagula money. Right. They're going to have yeah. the Frozen Four there yeah. again, uh, what, a 2019? D- also a D3 Frozen Four is coming here oh, at the Harvest okay. Center. But that said, and I, I don't always agree with Mike Harrington or the Buffalo News guys because I think they can be curmudgeonly for the sake of being curmudgeonly. I think he's totally right on this. He's got to pick a president of hockey, hockey operations and just sit back. Yep. Write the checks. You are you are a hockey fan, and I think he would say this. You're not a hockey expert. Let let Hire a smart guy and let him do smart guy things. Like- a- Adrian Dater and I did a reaction podcast. We literally heard the news and rolled the tape five minutes later. Okay. We just wanted to do it as an experiment. What are our raw thoughts about this? You know, before you spend the day reading, and, and we just wanted to get that on tape and see how it turned out. One thing I wouldn't change from what I said earlier is that something that holds Pagula back, it's a criticism made of me on this show. That he can be a fanboy. Right. And I think he's looking out there right now. And he's seeing what L.A. did. Bringing guys back. You know, Robitaille. You know, he's seeing what Colorado did it. L.A. did it. You know, Iserman is down in Tampa. I know he didn't play there. But, you know, other, other guy. It's just these teams are turning to... And he, I think he wants to be a part of that. Yeah, I was going to ask you that, too. Um, and there's a ton of names. Fans' knee-jerk is to go to Lindy Ruff. Yep. What and is your thought on that? Because I love Lindy Ruff. I mean, I have pictures of him standing over the boards, yelling at Brian Murray. Yeah. Like, that stuff gets you fired up. That yeah. guy loved the team, loved the city. He's here 16 years, I think, and what was it, like three good playoff runs? I mean, he wasn't the most well, successful. Well, he went to a cup he went and to a three cup. other conference finals. Okay, so he had two kind of good teams in that time. Right. But he also had like a lot of really bad teams there. And the one thing he was always criticized for here was stifling offensive talent. Like, and if I want to see this team go, I want to see them. They got they're all offense right now. They should be playing offensive. They can't stop anybody on defense. If we had went to the playoffs this year, and let's say, let's say we're the Leafs, mm-hmm. I would be more into giving him a shot next year. Bilesmo. Uh, oh, rough. rough. Okay. You know, like, yeah, I don't want him to rebuild. But I don't want him. I don't want a now, new, I don't new system. In. But he's not the only name. There's also Phil Housley, who's more, which f- I'm more okay with. You know, that's a guy who's out there. Kevin Adams, which I'm less okay with. Kevin Adams, Chris Drury. Yeah, that's an interesting one. You know what? If you're going to bring in a not guy, for coach, but GM, for GM. obviously, I'm o- I think I'm okay with that. I don't think there's a lot to dislike about that. He seemed like a cerebral, smart guy. He's a winner. Yeah, he's a winner. If he's willing to take that job, I think he's going to throw himself into it. Yeah. Yeah, so I just think there's a ton of names. And this is Mike Harrington's line, not mine. But Pagula's favorite thing to do is win press conferences. Yeah, sure. They love to win press conferences, and they're big-time fanboys. Yep. And if they can, in a week... Have a press conference with Phil Housley and Chris, Chris Curry. Curry. I think they jump at that. Yeah. And I think that 
the opportunity for that might be the motivation here. Sure. Just as much as more or as much as what Tim Murray did or didn't do. Do you think the Leafs The Leafs play played off? a part, yes. Yeah. Yes. And I think that's totally wrong. Yep. Uh I think we're more similar. I say we. <laughs> I'm going to be a fanboy yeah, here. Yeah, it's the Royal we here. We're I, Sabres guys. I think we're more similar to the Leafs than our record shows. The Leafs, first of all, we lost the best player on our team for about 40 games. If you want to say he wasn't 100%. Right. They say those those ankle injuries, you're back, but you're not 100%. Absolutely. And it's, anyone who watches football knows it. what happens when a running back gets a high ankle sprain. Right. Never the same yeah. the rest of the year. The Leafs had practically zero injuries this year, which is, is crazy. Uh, and... The Leafs also lost a lot of late games. And people, I think, just uh, kind of brushed this aside. They snuck into the playoffs. They didn't exactly, like, it's not like they went worse to first. I mean, granted, they are a 95-point team, which is generally going to get you in or close. But I, I don't think that the Leafs are some world beater. And what they're doing in Washington, it, it could just be Washington being Washington. And, but, and, and, and this is the one free year for Toronto, too. I mean, they have no... Right, no contracts. No expectations, yeah. no pressure next year when the Leafs are in the playoffs they're gonna find out what Toronto pressure is right this year it's just a free ride it's just to go play and have fun Let's that said they're buzz. a fun team to watch that's yeah. why I want my team to play I'd rather I mean they call them the cardiac kids so I assume they came back a lot I know they lost a lot of late like they lost like nine games where they held two goal leads or you know what like one that. of the biggest differences between the Sabres and the Leafs is is that the holdovers the veterans the cadres Ours. yeah they're contributing yep if you take, let's just That's compare Kadri to Ennis. Or Ennis. Yeah. I mean, Ennis is trash and Kadri is rejuvenated. Yeah, I feel so bad about that because Ennis was such a good, hardworking, happy face during the crappiest years of the Sabres, and then he came back and he just seemed slow. What is the best case scenario? It is what it is now. Yep. For you, what's the best case scenario? I think the best case scenario is whoever comes in. And I felt like Murray had this, is given the opportunity to complete the rebuild. I don't want the guy. What my fear is with this is the Pagulas have a two year right. you're fired. Yeah, too quick. I don't want the next guy to come in and think, we've only got two years. We better trade some young assets for veteran players to win now. Because this team is good or has a lot of good talent and has a lot of dead weight. I'd like to see the dead weight moved. And then build around the young guys. I don't want it. I don't want whoever comes in to freak out and think they have to win this year because the Pagulas keep firing people. Do you have any problem if part of the reason, or even most of the reason, was Eichel? Was Eichel that Biles? I don't think Eichel has anything to do with Murray. Murray. No. But um, let's say I don't it's somewhere between fifty to seventy-five percent of the reason why Bilesma is gone is Eichel. Does that bother you? Is that a problem for you? I don't. I'm kind of torn about that whole thing because I don't see Paul Hamilton as a guy to just say things to say things. I don't know him personally, but it's never really been his MO. But somewhere he got the story that if Bilesma was retained, Eichel would not sign an extension. The problem I have with that is everyone signs their extension. You know, like RFAs never move. And, and what Eichel might have met is now. Sure. Because there's not a lot of reason. There's a lot of reason for the Sabres to want to do it now. There's not a lot of reason for Eichel to want to do it now. That said, so that said, I mean, the same type of story came out about Bilesma in Pittsburgh. Not that Eichel should yeah, have he, that clout, but he, he didn't does work, have. Yeah. I mean, I've been saying it all along. I didn't football, like his style, the way he favored veterans, and 
Yeah, that and the way people get called up. You call up a goal scorer from the HL, but you make him play on the fourth line because he hasn't proven himself in the NHL. Yeah, people I hate talk shit like that. Yeah, people talk about. Uh, I think it was. I can't remember what coach it was, but they talk about how oh he didn't know the players' names. And Murray was about this. Murray said these guys spend too much time on video and system. Yep. Get a cup of coffee in your hand and go. But I'm saying go back with the players before even Ted Nolan, because Ted Nolan was all about like personalities yeah. and he was just that type of chemistry type of guy they complained about somebody else and then they brought in a guy that kind of seemed the same way like didn't in i'm not i've never been in a hockey locker room at any sort of competitive level but that seems to matter more in hockey than it does like football to me coaching maybe on the field matters more because it's x's and o's but uh with this I don't know enough about scheme, I guess. But it does seem to matter to hockey players that you have a guy you can get up and play for. And I know fans will say, oh, you make millions of dollars, play for whoever. But I don't know. I, I don't know if I want Eichel making those decisions, but he is your best player. And maybe he's speaking for the room. Maybe he's displaying leadership. Look, at Eichel's the guy that needs to be here for 15 years. Not Bilesma, so right. And I don't want to making that call, but if he's speaking yeah. for the team, maybe he's showing leadership. I don't know enough about it. I don't think. All right, let's move on. The NHL playoffs are about four games in. All the series are about have played about four. How, have, how much have you watched? I watch it every night. I mean, not maybe end to end, but every night I get it on. And it's been a weird playoffs because we we kind of bash the NBA playoffs for having like some series that just aren't competitive. It's kind of been this. Like, some are just really not competitive, and then other ones are really, really good. Right. Like, I've got no interest, really, in Some the... of the uncompetitive ones, though, aren't competitive because the same team's winning the overtime games. Yeah, that's true. You know, like, they're not, like... At least the Calgary series going into last night, so Calgary got swept. The first three games were all one-goal games. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, I so. guess the problem I have is since nobody comes back from, like, 3-0... I mean, I know what happens very rarely... Like you get to that fourth game, it's like uh, this 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 just doesn't mean much, you know. Because even if they win it, whoever's down three zero wins that fourth game, and then they go away. <laughs> game five, yeah, is, yeah, yeah. So those type of games aren't as fun. But man, some of the other series have been good. Yeah, Leafs and Capitals, I think, has been the best. So what is what is that about? I kind of talked about that earlier. Is that the Leafs playing up, like stepping up to the competition, or is it Washington kind of both fighting their ghosts? Like, and it's a good matchup for the Leafs. Yeah. The Leafs are a lot faster than the Capitals. Sure. And they have a great coach who realized we can we can put pressure on them with our speed. I know I'm a Buffalo fanboy here too, but man, did the Leafs get every single break in the game last night. Oh, it was embarrassing. Uh, that goal, why was that goal not a goal? Horrendous. I can't even imagine. Here's why. why that goal is not a goal. Because the guy that made the call is also the guy that has to overturn himself. That is the stupidest rule in hockey. We've talked about that before. If it's challenged, send it to... Why do you, why are uh, Toronto initiated the Saber or the NHL's like center was like the jewel of sports like everyone thought that was the greatest yeah. thing why make and then they they get challenges in and they don't send the challenges there for some reason Reddit will do their sports subreddits will do kind of like live forums where you kind of can just see the newest even I would say seventy percent of Toronto guys are like that should be a goal that. There's no reason that should And then there was the one in the Chicago game where Crawford gets his stick whacked, he gets moved sideways, and his head bumped. 
and the puck actually goes in where Crawford was sure, right. before he was turned. And that's not good. And that's a good goal. Goalie interference. Was it you that posted? Yeah, like, this is the, the equivalent of what's, what's a catch. catch. Yep. yep, that's a great point. I, they got to figure this out because it slows down the game and it's just it's not good for the game. I don't think we need challenges in the NHL. Especially for yeah. what they use them for. I just don't think we need them. The offside one is never, tough. They never add a goal. Yeah, All they true. do is take away goals, and there's not enough goals anyway. What would you say to leaving the offside challenge, but only if it immediately leads to a goal? Like, if they're in the zone for five minutes, you can't challenge it anymore. You know what I mean? Like, Because then the offside didn't play that much of a part. I just don't like the toenail thing. Uh, yeah. I think offsides and rushes and hockey is the kind of thing that you let the guy at the line make the call and you go with it. That's fair. I don't I, think it's the kind of rule that needs to be enforced like a goal line in football. I think that's one of those rules that 100 years ago was put into the game so guys just wouldn't goal hang. Right. And I don't think it was ever intended the way it is now. Where, oh, he got his, he had, like you said, his toenail. The game is made to be played at a high speed. Let it be played at a high speed. Yep. The linesman is... Every time is there on his knees looking across that line. Maybe this should just be a let's neighborhood rule. Let's live with this, <laughs> yeah. this call. Just... You know, if he calls you off, it's off. And, and plus, I don't like now that I feel like there's more offsides in the game because the guys don't want to have to overturn themselves. Yep. Yeah, the officiating in general hasn't been great. I say this every year. If a team makes it into the playoffs on the strength of their power play alone, I don't love that team because they, nothing gets called in the playoffs. I thought Ottawa was the worst team in the playoffs, and it looks like they're going to win a round. And, they could be. And then, not only are they going to win a round, then they're going to get to play the second round on their terms again. They're yep. going to play another slow, low-scoring series against Montreal the Rangers. If you don't hear this a lot. I think it was a Puck Daddy article. I can't remember who wrote it, but they just said... Oh, no, it was Travis Yost, who just said the the explanation for the Bruins-Ottawa series is just Boston has no answer for Eric Carlson. And you don't normally hear that about a defenseman, but... Eric Carlson's been the best player in the playoffs. Yeah, he's been unreal. Number one player in the playoffs. He always... I always thought he might be like... Uh, who was the guy for Washington? Who was a big point guy. Green? Mike Green? Yeah, Mike Green. I thought he's another Mike Green. Oh, he's so much better He's another that. Chris yeah. Letang to a certain extent. Yeah, no, he's, he's all world. He's so good. Mm-hmm. He's so good. Do you think Chicago has any chance to... They I have mean, to win four straight. No, not yeah. realistically, but yeah. I mean, I guess if anyone's going to do it, it, it could be them, but no, nah, I don't think so. Any thoughts on the emergence of Zach Cassian from the dead? People like to point to that as a bad Sabres move too, but it's not. No. Because where's Cody Hudson now? No, you know? but, no, uh, no, no. He's not even on Vancouver anymore. No. He's not at 13. No, I don't think much about Zach Cassian. He had one nice game, then they got blown out 7 nothing the next game. I didn't hear about his name after that game. Yeah, well, he so. had two, good, two really good games. Okay, yeah. Um, oh, he had both the game winners, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, what else playoff-wise? Anything else? They're always good. They're always good, I, like you said. A lot of overtimes. I wish the NHL would get out of its own way a little bit. Monday, but, there was uh, four games, four overtimes. It's only the third time that's ever happened. Wow. So. Yeah, it feels like every game is going overtime. Yeah. All right, last thing. Aaron Hernandez. Ugh. Uh, so, weird week. So, Aaron Hernandez beats a double murder. Right. He's in the middle of an appeal, I guess, for his convicted murder. Which he's serving life for. She's serving life. And also, even though he beat the double murder, he did get banged on a legal gun possession, which meant like a 10-year sentence that couldn't be served until his life sentence was over. Okay. 
And uh, then they find him. Yeah, hung by his bed sheet in his cell. In his cell. Hanged? Is it hanged? I don't know. But yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to think about it. It The whole story is, is sad. I don't have a lot of sympathy for a guy that kind of befriended a guy, then dragged him to the front lawn and killed him type right. of thing. But I don't know, man. I Officially I, rule the suicide today. I'm sure we've talked about this before, but is it just that these players are so good their entire lives they have to find challenge in their well, life? Do you know the sto- Do you know his story at all? So I mean, he's from Bristol. Right, and he caught and moved away or something. They sent him to Florida. Yeah. They said, you can't go to... Boston College. You got to get away from You got to get away here, from yeah. this. The hangers on. The, it's maybe the worst thing that ever happened to Aaron Hernandez was becoming a Patriot. Patriots, yeah. Because he went from trouble in high school in the Bristol, Connecticut area to getting away from it, going down to Florida, being with Tebow, winning, success. Yep. You know, and then he comes up to New England team who never pays anyone but pays him clearly they were blindsided by this yep um his brain is being turned over to university researchers yeah uh now that it's ruled uh the chief medical examiner had withheld some tissue samples from the star's brain as part of the effort to confirm he took his own life like i said that's confirmed now um yeah, it's sad all around. I don't, oh, they, they found three letters near his Bible and his. Yeah, uh, I heard room, that. Yeah, fiance and the daughter. Yeah, it's sad all around. Um, he's a bad dude. Like I don't have a ton yeah. of sympathy for him, but the whole. St- I mean, something happens that makes someone like that, and it's sad for him. It's sad for the people he killed or was involved with being murdered. It's just a sad story. It's one of the true American tragedies, I think. You sure. know, like it's uh, like Whitney Houston. Or yeah. something like Whitney Houston. You think about her at Super Bowl twenty five, and she's so beautiful, and she sings this amazing version, one of the most amazing renditions of the Star Spangled yeah, Banner the time. ever. Yeah, and then she's drowning in a right. drowning in a bathtub in Hollywood on crack or right. something. Yep. You know, it's like all right, way to put that together. And then a downer. <laughs> uh, here's what we got. We're gonna take a break. We're going to come back with the great Jane Levy. And then Don and I will be back for the book club. All right, our first guest today is... A legend in need of very little introduction. Uh, We met her when she was promoting her book, The Last Boy, Mickey Mantle, and the End of America's Childhood. And we talked to her today on her seventh appearance, a little over a year away from her next book, which centers around Babe Ruth. And she's nice enough to pick her head above the keyboard. And the work that goes into that to talk to us today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the distinguished and legendary Jane Levy. How's it going, Jane? God, you got it right, Steve. <laughs> Thank you. I did everything You're right. You're one of the few. <laughs> you know, there's a guy named Dan Levy 
who there's we just do this to screw you up, you know that. Yeah, and he, I can never get it right. I, it's it's kind of a head thing, and he rides me on it because he knows it's kind of a head thing, and it's kind of a joke. And uh, but you, I always get right. I don't know why. Him, I screw up. You, I get right. It should be easy because I live in Buffalo, where Marv Levy, you know, is the coach, and I know how that's spelled. You know, and that's how right. Dan spells his name. He's Dan Levy. And yours is spelled different, so I don't know. Right. Anyway, how are you, Jane? It's been a bit. It's been a minute as a, um, as a kid. I'm, I'm at that writer place where I'm in the bunker, and um, it doesn't feel like there's any way out of the bunker. So um, the fact that I'm on the phone with you is actually a great reprieve. It means that I'm... Um, not writing, which is really nice. <laughs> Last time you were on, we kind of ended with you saying, all right, I'm starting this project, and if anything has anything, you know, shoot it to me. Like, you were right at that beginning stage. I'm still open for uh, for business. <laughs> you still look... You still... So, somebody called me today and said, do you need anything about Babe in Syracuse? And I said, what's the problem? Sure, anything. That would be cool. I'll take it. Whatever it is, I'll take it. How has the experience been so far different or the same from Mantle or Koufax? Well, the the main thing is, and it's key, uh, everyone I need or would want to speak to is presently dead right. uh, in this book. And um, uh, it has, it, it daunted me from the beginning, um, if you're a, if you're a journalist and that's what I'm trained to be, uh, what you do is you go and you find people to talk to, and uh, my Ouija board isn't working. Um, so I've had to learn to be a very different kind of writer um, in this book, and I've spent God help me close to six years doing it now um, because I've had to go find sources that were archival or in the newspapers or, you know, birth and death records and things like that, that, um, you know, serious scholars and historians know to do, but um, I'm self-taught in this. There's been a lot, obviously, written about Babe Ruth. Uh, a friend of the show, Ed Sherman, did a great book a few years ago called uh, about the, the home run. Um, yes, I'm leaving it out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> actually, actually, I'm leaving. You're you're speaking, of course, about the called shot. The called shot, yeah. Um, and I, uh, 32 in at Wrigley Field, and um, I am really leaving it out. I'm not kidding um, because there, there, that's been the problem, and that was the problem, and that was the source of my reluctance about doing this. Is when you have guys like. Um, Lee Montville and um, Sherman and Bob Creamer and uh, Ken Sobel and Tom Meany and before that, you know, um, Fred Lieb channeling um, Bob Considine channeling the babe, you know, what is there left to do? And so I took really an entire year to see whether I could come up with something that I thought would be a very different look at him. And you know, I may disappoint some readers. I I, I expect that already, um, because I don't intend to repeat what I think those guys have done 
already and probably better than I could. I mean, Bob had access to guys who played with him, um, and clearly I don't. And uh, certainly it was true of, of Meany, and, and it, it, so the further you get away in time and, and you know, uh, in geography, uh, the more you have to look for not just different sources, but a different story to tell. And so uh, I was actually on online last night um, posting that uh, I'm actually, I actually have a, a pub date now, which is fall 2018. Right. And um, I forgot to post what the tentative title is. And the first part of it is not tentative, though I got a lot of suggestions that maybe it ought to be. Um, it's called The Big Fella which is what people really called him. Um, you know, the, the, you know, all those other names were made up by sports writers uh, who were competing to figure out what was the most purple alliteration they could to, to name him. Um, but the big fella, or in Casey Stengel's case, the big feller um, was what he was known as and as how he was referred to. Uh, so it's Babe, Babe Ruth... And the advent, currently advent of celebrity, but I think I'm done with advent. It's a little too <laughs> formal and Catholic for um, this title. So the invention of celebrity is probably what I'm going to settle on because dawn of and birth of are um, too cliched and origin is too many syllables. You know, it was interesting to me. I was listening back to some of our discussions and we would always talk about Mantle and how he was your guy. And how that was such a special project for you because because of that, because that was your guy and it was your chance to to write the good and the bad about him. Obviously, Babe Ruth wasn't your guy. Uh, Babe Ruth was a guy who was other people's guy before Mantle. He might have been my great-grandfather's guy. Right, exactly. If he he wasn't in a pogrom in Europe. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) So how has that, how has that changed the process for you, if at all, like, it was so personal last time, and now it's uh, you're writing a book that's personal to people a few generations before, like you said, these people aren't even on the earth anymore. How has that changed or affected you, if at all? Well, I mean, it, it, it's taken a lot longer because you have to think of this as sort of a mosaic in which um, you're assembling a larger picture from tiny little bits of information and color and fact um, that you cull from newspapers, you know, stretching all the way back to 1895 and earlier, um, and from family records. And it's more of a detective story. But one thing that I have found, and I think most biographers knew this before I figured it out, um, as much of a disadvantage as I am at, given that there's nobody left alive to talk to, and that, that's a little unfair because um, his daughter, Julia uh, Ruth Stevens, is alive. She's going to be 101 this summer, went to her 100th birthday last last summer, um, and I first interviewed her at least six years ago for a, a story for uh, Grantland. So... Um, and there are descendants, but so much of what the descendants know is what they heard from other reporters. It's all very third and fourth generation, as are they. 
So what I've learned uh, to do is to rely on the things that have been digitized. And, you know, I have, I have access to stuff, for example, that even um, I would guess, I haven't asked Lee this, but I would guess even Lee Montville didn't have access to because you just couldn't get at it in, in, in when he was writing, you know, 10 years ago, or right. probably he was writing 10 years ago. Um, so um, there's been a big disadvantage, but there's also, it turns out, some advantage to it. Um, it's a it's a much more intellectual approach than a than a personal one, um, and I think the the challenge for for anybody writing about the babe is to um, and and to a certain extent it's true of writing about any celebrity. It's how do you get uh, past the um, what was written for him by his ghost writers, what was written about him that was heavily censored by sports writers and sports editors in an era where people didn't quote people the way they actually talked and they didn't write what was, you know, there was a, a, a fine line between, uh, you know, what you saw and what you did um, and what you wrote on the about the playing field and what you didn't write of what you knew after they were done with the, the day's game. Um, so finding an authentic voice for him, um, for the for the real person inside a, a, a caricature that's been the accretion of you know a hundred years of um, stories and 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 literally you know art that caricature that has makes him into this kind of buffoon looking character. Um, that's the hardest thing. How do you find his real voice? Yeah, and you know it's interesting because you talked about technology and how technology has played a part for you in the book. And there was a, an article posted yesterday uh, that, with you uh, on SmithsonianMag.com, and I want to read uh, a part from you. Uh, this is your. This is you talking here. Uh, you said that he, being Babe, would be as big of a personality as he was then. But he wouldn't be the original he was when he decided to remake baseball in his own image. His peers would be as large physically as he was or bigger. And, of course, he'd have to face the very best of the very large pool of African-American talent that was banned from Major League competition. I've always wondered this, and I I don't know enough about, I guess, what baseball was like then. But why is there an assumption that... Babe Ruth, like, it, like, was there literally pitchers in the world that Babe Ruth didn't face that Babe Ruth wouldn't have been able to hit? I, you know, that those kind of con- that kind of conjecture kind of doesn't really interest me because okay. I don't think it's answerable. Right. Um, right. You know, yeah, he didn't have to pe- face Dick Redding at his best, and Dick Redding was a hell of a hell of a pitcher. He didn't have to. Uh, he didn't have to face Satchel Page. He didn't have to pay. You know, God knows how many people he didn't have to face. However, he also had to hit um, baseballs that were either dead, you know, in the, in the earliest part of his career, or before they outlawed um, spitballs and stuff that were discolored and and uh, defaced in all sorts of ways. 
Um, so, I, you know, that kind of conjecture kind of, I know it amuses a lot of people. It doesn't, it doesn't help me because I'm trying to get beyond conjecture. Right. I think, however, and this is a phrase that was um, used um, by a former sports medicine doctor that I knew when I was writing about Mantle, and we're talking about how he managed to do the things he did um, as impaired as he was orthopedically with that knee injury that was never really um, adequately treated because they couldn't diagnose it and they wouldn't have been able to fix it anyway. Um, and how it basically played, you know, maybe half a season uh, as the complete physical uh, specimen that he might have been had he not, you know, gotten run off a ball by Joe DiMaggio in right. uh, the World Series in 1951. And what this guy said to me is there are some people who are just neuromuscular geniuses. It's a different, you know, we talk about all the different kinds of intelligence that are, um, you know, that people have and, you know, emotional intelligence and spatial intelligence and, you know, verbal intelligence. Well, there's also a neuromuscular intelligence. And that would have been true of Babe Ruth no matter when he played. So if you're saying, well, take Babe Ruth and put him in a modern era where he'd be coddled by Scott Boris, um, where he'd be working out, um, you know, after the game, where cell phones would be trailing him, and so he'd actually have to be more careful than he ever had to be about what he was seen doing, um, where he'd have better equipment and presumably, um, you know, a better diet, God knows, and anybody would have had a better diet, um, where he would have been drug tested, and I'm not saying that Beirut used drugs, but I'm saying where he would have been drug tested. If, you, if you're going to try to project forward it to what he would have been now, then you have to also give him all the equipment, all the advantages right, that the people have now. now one of the things that, that was interesting, and I, and I think this is true, um, that I, I heard about Mantle, you know, why he had the hard, such a hard time in the mid-60s. He said to somebody, you know, like, when I came up, all the pitchers were these little guys like Connie Marrero, and now they're all six feet tall, you know. Um, he had this advantage. I mean, remember, Mantle was only 5'10", um, as was Willie Mays, but... Um, which is shocking. I mean, Babe Ruth was bigger than those two guys. I mean, Babe Ruth was literally bigger than anybody else on the baseball field. He was bigger than the game. He was bigger than everybody else who played it. But, you know, so today, uh, you know, he, he was actually just about the same size as Sandy Koufax, believe it or not. He was 6'2", 215 when he first um, arrived, uh, you know, when he was at his best in Boston. So, you know, it, it, you know, so he too was feasting off of small, you know, junk throwing um, pitchers, but he also had to face the balls that were defaced and that you couldn't see because they had turned black. Because when the you know ball went out of play, kids didn't get to take it home. They threw it back on the field, you know, right. battered, you scuffed up, and you played with it again. So um, there is no doubt. You know, because his story is archetypal of a American dream of you know 
picking yourself up by your bootstraps and uh, surmounting a, a difficult childhood and coming from nothing to make yourself everything. Um, you know, there was something very special in him. And it was not just muscular. It was, there was a kind of um, audacity about him. Um, and uh, I, I would say almost uh, a, a radicalism. Um, after all, you know, it, other people could have decided to hit home runs. You know, it wasn't that nobody else could. It's that nobody else did. You know, this is a guy who said, why should I play station-to-station baseball? Why should I hit, you know, choke up and hit the ball to left field when, when I can swing away and end the game in one swing? That was a decision. Now, he had the ability to do it once he made the decision, but he didn't have any patience with that other kind of baseball. So he literally took the game into his own hands and remade it. And, of course, what makes him the best player ever, um, bar none, is that he was as good a left-handed pitcher as there was in Major League Baseball when he was a pitcher. There's no telling how good you know he would have stayed or become um, had he continued as a pitcher. But, you know... What did he win? Twenty four games one year, something like that. I can I can't even remember. You know, that's the kind of stuff I don't memorize. So, um, but it, you know, so the, hands down, he's the best player ever. It's like and, if Kershaw, um, it's like if Kershaw said, "I'm going to win one more Cy Young, and then I'm going to go to the outfield, start hitting fifty home runs, and rack up a few MVPs before I retire." Yeah, because it's more fun. Right. <laughs> more uh, fun to be out there every day. Can you imagine if Babe Ruth had what kind of trouble he would have gotten into? If he'd been pitching once every five days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he wouldn't um, have been busy enough. Uh, yeah, he wouldn't have been busy enough, exactly. I was watching uh, Catch Me If You Can the other night, and there's this line that keeps going through the movie where I think it's introduced by um, Christopher Walken, and he says to his son, why do the, why do the Yankees always win and the son's not sure, and the dad says, well, because everyone's always staring at the pinstripes. And eventually this gets to Tom Hanks' character, and Tom Hanks' character very, I think, astutely says, no, the Yankees always win because they have Mickey Mantle. And the thing about the Yankees, for as long as the Yankees have been the Yankees, is if if Catch Me If You Can was set in the time of Babe Ruth, Carl Han. Righty, the the name of the Hanks character could have said, no, they win because of Babe Ruth. And then he could have said, no, they win because of Lou Gehrig. And then he could have said, no, they win because of Joe DiMaggio. And then, no, they win because of Mickey Mantle. No, they win because of uh, Reggie Jackson. No, they win because of Don Mattingly. No, they win because of Derek Jeter. I feel like this is the first time where there's no Yankee to put there. Like... Do you think about that at all? Who's We talk so much over your appearances about Mickey Mantle being your guy. If you're growing up where you grew up right now, who, who's your guy? Like, Can you think of another time where the Yankees were so kind of guileless? <laughs> guileless or guileless? Guileless. You know, like... Guy, that, no, I'm kidding you. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, you I mean, there, there was the Horace Clark era. You know, yeah, not a lot of people. There was Bobby Mercer in there, but he and everybody wanted him to be the guy because he was another um, Oklahoman, but he wasn't really 
quite up to that level. And there was Roy White, who was a lovely player and a lovely man, but he wasn't at that level. And same with Chambliss. And, um, uh, you know, I don't think we know. I think, you know, I think, thank God, finally, they decided to get, you know, just start collecting um, draft choices. And if, if any of these guys can stay healthy, you know, there might be somebody in this crew that uh, Cashman's assembled who may who may be that guy. But it's also harder now. Um, you know, the playing field is more level now. Uh, so I don't know. I'm 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 hoping one of them's the guy, or they'll go out and buy one. Well, and that's <laughs> what go I, I want to go buy Bryce Harper, or right. whoever Machado. I wanted to ask you about that because you're in Washington a lot. You spend a lot of time there. What yeah, about I live here. what about Harper and the Yankees? And it just seems like it seems like an inevitable collision, right? I mean, it just seems like that's where he wants to be. You know, his agent. I don't know. You don't I don't know? know about that. Okay, talk. To, I, I, let's hear you. What you think? I'm curious. I I, I, I think you don't know. I mean, I you know, I it's. Um, he certainly acts as if um, he really loves it here and as he really loves the city. Um, Washington isn't the um, burg it was when I moved here 30 years ago. It's a much cooler place than it was. Um, you know, I, 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 I think, I, I also think it would probably depend a lot on what happens this year. Um, you know, do I think he wants to go to a team? that doesn't have a chance of winning if they don't if the Nats don't win this year. Gee, I don't know about that. You know, is it going to be just pure money and the need to be able to say, you know, I got a $400,000 contract. I mean, for whatever, 400,000. 400 million. Whatever yeah. that number is. Right. 40 million. I don't even remember what it is. Um, you know, I I I don't know. I it, you know, based on last year, so you know, unless he has another 2015? Is anybody going to pay him that kind of money? It's uh, I think I think you just don't know yet, or at least at this point, I don't know. Right. It just you know I think that there's maybe some expectation on the Nats side that maybe they can get a deal like they got from Strasburg, but that's so different because Strasburg's got to worry about an exploding elbow, you know, and he I think he well was, the, the part, problem is that Nats do so many deferred money deals because of the Masson contract that they're struggling with and with ownership that wants to run a team in a way that's not the way every team is run. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. Why didn't they spend the money? Well, they did make, but they did make the offers, but the, you know, the, uh, on the closer, does that look bad right now? Uh, after last night? Right. I mean, really? Yeah. <laughs> um, I feel sorry for that guy. I feel, feel sorry for Trinan, but I'm not surprised either that he's overmatched by it. Um, and it's not because he's a nice guy. It's not because he's religious. Mariano Rivera was religious. You know, it's that intangible something that allows um, somebody to flourish in certain circumstances and where other people are overmatched by them. How do you think the? Well, let's let's talk about the babes some more. <laughs> Let me ask you one more modern thing. Uh, okay. How do you think the Cubs winning a World Series changes baseball, if at all? Just in a in a in a in a really zoomed out sense. 
you know, not just macro sense. Right. Yeah. Just like the, cause they're the last one, right? I mean, like now the, the Indians are the longest, but I mean, there's a lot of people living who went on that victory parade. It's not uh, the, the two biggest stories of my lifetime in baseball were the Red Sox and the Cubs not winning a world series. Like my whole life, all 36 years of it has been, you know, surround like been lived under that umbrella of that's what the biggest thing in baseball was every year. Is this the year for those teams? And then obviously the year came well, for the Well, it wasn't for Sox. everybody. It was for a certain population. And those two populations, Boston and uh, Chicago, happened to have a whole lot of literary lights that enjoyed the misery and enjoyed writing about the misery of being the team that hadn't won since. Um, you know, I, I agree with you. You're, you're missing the dramatic narrative now. I, I'm not going to get excited over whether the Cubs win two, are you? No. <laughs> I mean, um, but that's the thing about, you know, that's the thing about baseball. Something else will come along. Um, something else always does. Some catalytic personality or player or, or scandal or, you know, whatever um, it will come along and take the center stage. Did you know, by the way, that the um, Curtis Candy Company, the people that managed to persuade a, a judge that the baby Ruth candy bar was not named for Babe Ruth, um, <laughs> put up a, you know, about the big sign that was yeah. put up on Sheffield Avenue for years um, you know, yep. I, I, I've been I was spending all afternoon trying to find out exactly when it went up and exactly when it came down, and I have not been able to find it. And if anybody knows, please let me know. Did you enjoy? I know it went up after the call shot, and I know it was still there in '71, but when exactly it went up and came down, I don't know. Did you enjoy the the Cubs run last year? Did it Did it get you? Did you? You know, I, I mean, uh, I'm, uh, yeah, I watched it. I mean, yeah. it, it was great baseball. Uh, I mean, that, you know, that, yeah. that's what I was rooting for. Um, you know, how many people would have said, gee, I'm really excited by the Cleveland Indians? Um, I, you know, but they were terrific. And Terry Francona is a fabulous manager and a great guy. And he, I think he managed his, you know, circles around Matten. I think Madden Road, you know, if Chapman breaks down, we all know why. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, if, for the Indians to get as far as they did with basically two pitchers, it's, I mean, that's... Absolutely astonishing. Francona, unbelievable job he did for sure. Uh, the sportscaster here with Jane Levy, and we got a few more minutes, and she's working on this Babe Ruth book that we can't wait to read, obviously, and... You know, I was thinking about this and thinking about Babe and, and thinking about you and thinking about Mantle because whenever I think about you, I think about Mantle. And I was being a little <laughs> selfish and then thinking about myself. And in every way that Mantle is your guy, Drew Brees has been my guy. Uh, Drew Brees Drew Brees came into my life in 2006. Uh, thank God. Um, I've been, you know, the two most important things in my life as a kid were the Saints and Pearl Jam. And, you know, then you become an adult and you have things like a wife and a kid. And obviously those are more important. But strictly from a 
uh, from a um, superficial sense. You don't sound convinced about that. Oh, no. <laughs> well, who knows who's going to listen to this? Uh, no, seriously, strictly from a superficial sense, the two most important things in my life are the Saints and Pearl Jam. And thank God Drew Brees came into my life and has been my guy. And he's been the kind of my guy that since 2006, he's never disappointed me. He's always – the headlines I read about Drew Brees are like he walked home from practice today and Ted kid, 10 kids followed behind him, and he talked to them as he walked from the Saints practice facility to his house. And, um, uh, you know, it just, it's just things like that. Like, he just it's, – it's everything I ever – as a sports fan, he's everything I ever dreamed of. And I found myself the last two or three years, at the end of every game, whether it's a win or a loss, I take a deep breath and think, oh, my God, that's one last game that he's going to be my guy. And I've never had – you would think this happens to, like, a 12-year-old. So maybe that's why – maybe I'm a little embarrassed. But I'm going to admit that it's hap- it happened to me in in 2006 as a – I don't remember how old I was then. I was born in 1980. Someone who's better at math can figure it out. 26. It happened to me as a 26-year-old where the perfect athlete came into my life and made all my dreams as a sports fan come true. Everything I dreamed of, you know, the, if I can close my eyes at any time and picture Drew Brees standing with his son over his head and Sean Payton's next to him with the Lombardi trophy and the confetti is coming down and I could cry every time. If I wanted to, I could cry just thinking about it. And that's ending. And I had, I wanted to get some advice on what you do when it's ending, when your guy is ending. How, like, like as a sports fan, I, I don't think I ever asked you this. We spent so much time talking about Mantle and how important Mantle was to you. What do you do when it ends? Oh, boy. Um, well, you got to remember, this ended a really long time ago. Um, it's been what? He retired six, in 69. Um, oh, well, that's only 50 years, isn't that? Is that right? 50 has, years? Has anyone come close Just about, to you since? <laughs> Just about 50 years. Yeah. Um, uh, you grow up, Steve. You just grow up. Yeah. It's, hard. It's, the, it's the hardest thing for me to grow up from as a saint. I say it all the time. Like, they can't make me this mad. Like, well, how can you be this upset? You know, like, last year was the first year where I watched every game holding a child that counts on me. But, you know, there was still two times where I went to bed after the game and pouted for an hour or two. Um, you, so. you, you immerse yourself in the history. Like uh, yesterday I was um, writing about Babe's the first game at Yankee Stadium. Mm-hmm. And um, I've looked at those pictures of, you know, the, the old Model A's on the dirt roads that later became 158th Street and River Avenue. And um, I was pulling out all the research I've done about how they filled in uh, well, basically, it was a floodplain with Manhattan schist that was dug up when they built railroad tunnels under the um, Grand Concourse in 1905. Uh, but there's still a creek, Cromwell's Creek, that runs um, across the infield uh, or where the infield used to be. And uh, when when they went to dig out Yankee Stadium for the horrible 74-75 renovation, my uncle... Um, 
was one of the mechanical engineers, and I remember him telling me that they they were stunned. Nobody understood why when they lowered Yankee Stadium's playing field, everything flooded, including the dugouts. And it was because there was this submerged creek underneath there. Um, it was also one of the reasons that when I went to see Mickey Mantle um, in a, on a May 1962 game, the one where he pulled up um, just before he got to first base, he was hitting 300, and it was the year after the 60 home runs, and you know he looked like he was finally going to have it all together again. You know, he I remember the dew hanging in the air in the in and in the lights uh, on the big stanchions over the third deck. Well, the dew is because you're so near the water and there's water underneath the field there. Um not on not on the north uh, not on the uh, north side of uh, 161st Street, but in that old field. And you know, you immerse yourself in the lore. Did you know that the original plan for Yankee Stadium called for battlements to be on the third deck um and <laughs> no. they and they they got rid of them rupert and uh houston got rid of them only because it cost too much money they wanted it so enclosed they didn't want anybody to be able to see into it from the elevated train <laughs> you know and that of course became one of the great things is that you could you could sit in the, in the ballpark and see the trains going by or you could be on that train and catch a glimpse of it and, uh, you know, my whole childhood was predicated on being able to see a swath of that from the synagogue at 161st Street, the top of 161st Street. And these guys wanted nobody to be able to see in. They wanted it to be like the Colosseum in Rome, and they couldn't afford it. So they got rid of the battlements, and they got rid of the complete circle, and we settled for having the frieze, which is not a facade, uh, but the copper frieze. And uh, as as the um, homage to monumentality. Do you have a second? Is it, did anyone ever emerge in the fifty years that came close to making you feel the way Mickey Mantle did? No, that's the no. whole point of having a guy. Yep. No, I there it. isn't I a know. second. I no. wanted you to say yes. You know, I just I wanted it, but I know you. I know I knew the answer. I just Drew Brees. Yep, Drew Brees is. I mean, it's just. See, I hate football, so I, I I just can't go with you there. Right, but you could never I hate just... you could never hate Drew Brees. I promise you. Uh, two quick things, and I'll let you go. Uh, I have written down. I have this this uh, like a, a a Jane Levy sheet. I have it. You know, it's got your <laughs> it's got your bio, things we've talked about, notes, and I have a note that says Jane hates Twitter. Uh, is this book going to force you to make peace with Twitter? Will you? Oh, probably. Yeah, yeah I guess. Um, the publisher will make me do it, I, I, I suspect. I still really believe that it's incredibly antithetical to what I believe in uh, in terms of writing, to think that you can say anything meaningful in 140 characters other than, you know, 10 fingers, 10 toes. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it's become a form of reportage, limited as it is, and, uh, you know, I guess I need to build up my following and my followers and my brand and all that kind of stuff, um, but at least I have a little while. I don't have to mess with that yet. Well, if you need help, I, I will volunteer to be your social media 
I, I will. I, I take you up on it. I'll need it. Believe me. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm free to do anything to help uh, get Jane to Twitter. I, I did a similar thing for uh, SL Price, but he doesn't want to give me any credit. Um, that's a joke we have between each other. All right, very last, <laughs> very last thing. We'll... He's pretty good writer. Oh, he's he's the best. He's a, he's a really good friend of the show, and I, I I hounded him for months or many appearances about getting on Twitter, and finally I broke him. And uh, but he won't admit it. He 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 claims other forces. <laughs> uh, last thing, I'll get you out of here on this, as Tony Kornheiser, Tony Kornheiser would say. Um, so it is. 2017 summer of 2000 spring late spring early summer 2017 this book comes out fall of 2018 so as best as you want to describe it take us into your office so to speak and tell us what is going to be going on in there between now and then what what is going to be the process and the things that will happen between now and fall when this book comes out, as detailed as you want to uh, allow us to peek in? Well, I'm likely to go blind from reading this stuff. (laughs) I have 35 binders of um, newsprint, Um, you know, much of it, uh, you know, downloaded off of all different sites or just copied and badly copied in 16th generations of copies of stuff, um, to pour through, and every time I think I've got everything I need in order to finish a chapter, um, you know, I find something else um, that I forgot because there are 35 binders I have to go through in order to write each of these things. Um, I've written about two-thirds of it, and um, uh, I think I've told you in the past that it's organized um, to recreate three weeks in his life, uh, the right. three-week barnstorming tour that he and Gehrig, um, you know, took off on uh, just two days after beating the Pirates four straight in the 27 World Series, and it's just about two weeks after he hit the 60th home run. So he is he is king of the world, and he's going out to the people, um, uh, town to town to town by train mostly. Um, to scrounge up some money playing basically what were pickup games and, uh, you know, kiss babies and uh, sign autographs. And, um, uh, you know, I would argue, you know, and I do actually, um, that he was, well, he was the most famous man in America who wanted to be famous. You know, you can argue rightfully so, that Lindbergh in 27 was more famous and what he did was more significant. But Lindbergh didn't want to be among the people. And uh, when his uh, tour, his barnstorming tour ended after he came back from Paris, he just holed up. And Charlie Chaplin, of course, was equally famous, but he was also infamous because of uh, the recent divorce and scandal from his teenage wife. And, and he wasn't an American. Um, Babe Ruth was one of us, and he wanted to be not just one of us, but among us. And he was um, uh, he was a, a funny kind of instinctive revolutionary. He, as I said before, he he just made up his mind that um, there was no reason 
to allow the John McGraws of the world to move people around um, the baseball diamond like chess pieces when he could just swing the bat and, and end the game. Um, he insisted upon his right to have an agent, um, and he had the first agent, a guy named Christy Walsh, who organized all his barnstorming tours and basically saved him from financial ruin. Um, he insisted upon the right to uh, barnstorm against Negro leaguers, um, which you know does not make him into Jackie Robinson and it does not make him into um, Martin Luther King, but it was a significant thing to do. Um, beginning when he did it, which I think the first one was 1918, though don't quote me on that. Um, and so I think he was he was the original original. Um, and I also think he was um, he had some real stuff in him. You know, he he had some real character. I mean, people can talk about where he was failed in terms of character, but here was a guy who had really no childhood, way worse than people know, um, who created a life for himself and a way of life for himself as a young boy left, you know, dumped by his parents in a reform school. Um, And then he went out on the public stage and created... um, I don't particularly like the word persona, but um, lacking a better one at the moment, went out and created a public self and public persona. Um, and those two two things, um, you know, work together. It um, that that persona, a lot of it was real. Uh, some of it was manufactured, and some of it managed to hide not so much from other people, but I think from himself. Um, the the little boy that was still in there. Everybody talks about what a little kid he was. You know, come on, he was a grown up. Did he act like a fool sometimes? Did he like whoopee cushions? Absolutely. Did he think it was fun to smash people's straw hats through the crown? Yeah, totally. Um, but he enlivened every room he walked into. Um, there's a story that I just finished putting in about how. You know, Miller Huggins was always looking for a time and a place that it was appropriate to um, discipline him in 24 before the infamous, horrible season of 25 when everything came tumbling down on him. And he couldn't find one because whenever he would go to discipline him, Ruth would hit two home runs or something like that. And um, Mark Roth, the traveling secretary, sitting with him and Huggins sitting by the clubhouse door waiting for Ruth to come in late as he had become accustomed to doing and he's all set to you know chew him out and take him down and this and that and he walks in the room and the club comes alive and so mark roth says are you going to talk to him yeah i talked to him what'd you say hiya babe <laughs> i love it well that is seven appearances just like the great mickey mantle number seven uh is there anywhere you want to direct people in case they have some of the information you asked for, like the exact dates for the sign, things like that. What's the best way for people who may Well, I'm can... certainly on... Um, I, I do do Facebook okay. a lot. Um, but I also still have my website up, which is uh, jadelevy.com. 
Not that I've updated it. I've been, it's been pointed out to me that I really need to. You want to do that for me, Steve? Sure. I'll do anything for you. <laughs> it's, it's a it's a mess. Um, anyway, uh, so um, you know, or or you can just have my email address, which is jane.levy at me.com. And then you're going to text me when we're going to start working on at Jane Levy on Twitter. You got it, babe. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Be well. Go kiss your daughter. I will. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. I want to thank Jane Levy for being on the podcast today. It's truly an honor every time Jane's on. I know I'm not just saying that for the fun of it. It's an amazing appearance. She says, I need to grow up, Don, when Drew Brees walks away from the Saints. <laughs> but that's hard. Easier said than done. Yeah. I've been saying for years now I need to grow up <laughs> when it comes to the Saints, but it's hard. All right. Book club update. The Cubs way. The Zen of building the best team in baseball and breaking the curse. By Tom Verducci, a New York Times bestselling author. This is a cool-ass book. Uh, when you open it, one of the very first things in here is John Madden's – or Joe Madden, right? Did I say John? You said John, yeah. Uh, Joe Madden's scorecard from Game 7. Oh, sweet. And look at the legend you need to read this. <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable all the different – Things in here. And this book, the detail and the research into Madden and uh, Epstein and how they turned this team from 108 years of losing to World Series champions is just masterfully done by Tom Berducci. It's sometimes I think books find the per- perfect author for them. Okay. Like I think Jeff Passan was the perfect guy to write that book, The Arm. Okay. You know what I mean? I think that Jane Levy was the perfect person to write the Mickey Mantle book because Mickey Mantle was her guy. You right. Know? Maybe uh, Joe Poznanski was not the perfect guy to write Paterno. <laughs> maybe not, right? Right. You know, maybe if someone else is in that apartment, we have a much different book. Yeah. And it's much more – it's remembered instead of almost purposely released to be forgotten. Yeah. You know, I mean, when you release a book you work that hard on and you only do three interviews, you're essentially saying, I want to get this out and move on with my life. Uh, I don't know. What's another example? Trying to look over at our books. The Last Natural, that book that we read about Bryce Harper. Rob Mish Mm. was the perfect guy to write that book. Um, And I think Verducci is the perfect guy to, to write this one. And I think if you love the Cubs... You're going to love this book, and we do have a copy to give away if you're interested to get in touch. But I think you should hurry, because I think a lot of people are going to be interested. Uh, again, it's called The Cubs Way, The Zen of Building, The Best Team in Baseball, and Breaking the Curse by Tom Verducci. All right, we'll take a break, and we'll come back with Mike Halford, who, when I open up the prep sheet that I have for him, it says over and over again, don't call him Al. <laughs> Who's Al Halford? He's a basketball player. Oh, okay. So. 
That's funny. Yes. All right, we'll be right back with Mike Alford. All right, our next guest is in the place they call Vancouver, and he is the co-lead writer and editor at NBC's Pro Hockey Talk, and he also hosts a radio show on TSN's 1040. Nice enough to join us today during playoff time, a warm sportscaster's welcome to Mike Halford. What's up, Mike? How's it going? Good to be back on the show. It's been a while. Lots of stuff going on. Busy, busy day. I'm excited. I have written down over and over again, don't call Mike L. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, well, I need to know what the hockey world in Vancouver thinks about what happened in Buffalo today. Let's start there. Uh, from a personal perspective, pretty surprised that Murray was sort of made to walk the plank along with Bilesma. I think everything that transpired over the last week, it became pretty apparent that Bilesma was on super thin ice and there was a real good chance that he wasn't going to be back to start the year. Even if he was back to start the year, he probably would have been atop the odds makers list for the guy first to be fired. It just right. it looked like there was uh, dysfunction throughout the room. And I guess what happened after Murray met with Terry Pagula was, the dysfunction wasn't just in the room, it was across the organization. And, you know, when an owner sees that, that's when you get the gutting. That's when you get the, the clearing of the house. And, you know, that's exactly what transpired. This was a major gut job because unlike Los Angeles, who had pieces in place to immediately take over from Sutter and Lombardi, of course, I'm talking about Luke Robitaille and Rob Blake, right. the Sabres didn't have any of that in place. No. And we're talking about, I mean, this is, this is a dramatic shake. This is, this is a far more dramatic shakeup for me than the one in LA because they are going into what many executives are considering a, a make or break off season for a lot of teams because you've got so many different dynamics at play. I mean, you've got the expansion draft to consider. You've got the draft, the, the, the standard entry draft to consider. Uh, you've got, you, you've heard so many pundits say that June is going to be absolutely insane with regard to player transactions and trades. And you're two months out, and you don't have a head coach, and you don't have a general manager. It is, it's a pretty profound statement, and that's why I was surprised that Murray was gone as well, because he is the overseer, and he's got his fingerprints on everything that goes on in the organization. Now he's gone. So not only do you have to find a replacement in short order, uh, you've also got to get a guy that's got some familiarity with the organization, because he's got a crash course with the next two months before all the transactions start to take place. Well, it's interesting you say that, too, because... I wish I thought of this line. It's Mike Harrington's line, not mine. But one thing that Terry Pagula loves to do is win a press conference. He loves yep. to do it. And also, if there's been a criticism of him as owner of the Sabres and of the Bills now, it's that he can be a little bit of a fanboy. And when you take a step back and you think about some of the names that you can plug into those spots... In two days, he can have a press conference with Lindy Ruff and Chris Jury sitting up there, if he wants. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure. He's, I'm sure that's a big part of this. I'm sure he's fairly cognizant of everything that's gone on right. around the NHL and that these trends 
whether they're successful or not, are trends. I mean, you go to Sackick and Waugh right. in Colorado, which has proven to be a disaster. Here in Vancouver, Trevor Linden came back to be the president. Uh, obviously, I just mentioned L.A. Rob Blake and Luke Robitaille have, are in Legends Row in, yep. in L.A., right? I mean, there, there is that sense of the nostalgia factor. Uh, whether it's been a successful one kind of remains to be seen. Because like the ones that I've mentioned, you could say results have been middling to poor at best. But Buffalo, like okay. a lot of markets, is yeah, yeah. Like a Buffalo is one of those markets where it's like they, they do love the guys of old, right? I mean, yep. they're always trotting back the alumni in. And, you know, you've got Drury in New York. You know, he's in-state working in and, and mentoring under a guy in Jeff Gordon who's done a really nice job since taking over from Glenn Sather. So you would think there's some familiarity there. He also got that splashy position with USA Hockey where he, him and Bill Guerin are going to be running the show. You know, the Hitchcock thing in Dallas, often it really it does kind of make you wonder if, uh, if, the, if the Sabres will, will dial back the clock as well and get Lindy Ruff back in. So if that's the public perception with Pagula being a bit of a fanboy and a guy that wants to play to the fans and play to the crowd. Yep. Uh, he's certainly got his ducks in a row to do it right now. Yeah, that's the first thing I thought of is just that, wow, Terry took a step back and said, these are these just aren't Buffalo guys. You know, to, I think, I bet, and I'm speculating, but I bet if we had a chance to ask him, he would just say that Murray just doesn't understand it here. He doesn't understand the people he doesn't understand the way to talk, you know, because if you listen, I mean, a, a Tim Murray press conference is very unique and very, enter- very, very entertaining. I think, I think he's great, you know, and, uh, but you watch him back down a reporter, uh, the way he can in very intimidating fashion. And I just, I think that that rubs them the wrong way for whatever reason. And like you said, he's looking around the league and he's seeing everyone else do this. Or it being a popular trend, not everyone's doing it, but he's seeing it a popular trend. And I think he feels like, I want to do this. I want to bring the guy who scored with 7.7 seconds left to go uh, to tie the game against the Rangers, you know. I want to bring that guy back. And why not have his first GM job be here? Why New York Rangers? Why not here? I can rewrite the wrong from, you know, July 1st, 2007. I think... yeah, you know, I, I think there's, right? I think, I I think there's something to it. I think yeah. the other part too, and I was talking with my cohort at Pro Hockey Talk, Jason Brock, today about this. That look, Murray, Murray came in with a plan and delivered it to Pagula that he was, and then Pagula even said like, you know, this is going to be the new hockey town, and they had big lofty aspirations, and part of that was bottoming out entirely. Now, look, two things happened. One, they didn't land Mike Mike Babcock. So Bilesman was always going to be a 1B, no matter what the situation. Even right. if he had had more success in Buffalo than he ever did. And two, and this is not taking away from Jack Eichel at all, but their plan was to get Connor McDavid. It, I mean, it was as clear as day. And when Murray came out afterwards and talked about how disappointed he was that he didn't get that number one overall pick, again, this is not a slight to Jack Eichel, because Eichel can be and will be a franchise guy. But he's not Connor McDavid. There's a difference there. I don't think anyone can deny that. that and... and when you make those proclamations and you tear it down as emphatically as he did and you promise as high as Murray did, you need to deliver. And I think that's part of the reason why he went out and got Ryan O'Reilly. I think it's part of the reason why he went out and got Evander Kane. I think it's why he made big moves. I think it's why he went out and overpaid for Robin Lehner. I think it's why he made a move like Kulikov and then talked up Kulikov to the degree they did because I think he felt that he needed to deliver big time. And it wasn't going to be good enough to be an okay team or a good team or even a very good team because the rebuild was going on in Toronto at the exact same time 
and that probably only exacerbated things. Seeing that so a team that's a division rival and so oh, close tr- in proximity with geography, it, it killed him. It Toronto killed him. is definitely. I'm sure it a killed Pagula to watch it too. Oh, Toronto is definitely a factor in this. Definitely yeah. a factor in this. Pagula absolutely feels like the Sabres should be ahead of them because they started earlier, you know, and they're absolutely a factor. And, um, you know, I still there's no there's no sense in us going back and forth on it. But I still say that the tank season was about getting one or the other. Of course, you want the better guy, but you know, I don't think that I don't think the reason that Tim Murray is fired today is because the Sabres lost that lottery, but the reason he's fired partly might be the, that they lost the one the year before. When they lost the one the year before, he had the pick of any of the forwards. You could you could argue, now be revisionist a little bit, uh, because Ekblad has been so good, you could argue that the Sabres would have picked Ekblad. They were flush with D at the time, and everyone thought they were going to pick the best forward in that draft regardless. And the way it worked out, even with losing the lottery, he got to call his shot. And it doesn't look like he picked the right guy. You know, it looks like Dreisaitl was the right guy, not Reinhardt. And Reinhardt was a bit of a dog this year. And I think that's a big, big strike against. Uh, it it absolutely is. He needed to hit those drafts out of the park. Now, look, I just just to clarify on on the lottery thing, um, it wasn't so much about anything to do with the lottery. It's 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 a bigger picture thing. It's when you tank that hard and you promise the world. That's when the rebuild's got to start, right? Like that. So that's it. So it's like we get the coach and we get the pick, and then you don't get the coach and you don't get the pick, and that's kind of out of your hands. It's nothing out of your control, and you're in no way going to get fired for that. But the bar was set exceptionally high, and you have to match that, right? You just do. That's it. When you come in and proclaim and you tear it down as emphatically. Now, going back to what you talked about his drafts, there's been some flaws here. They've gone too forward heavy. They haven't been able to find the defenseman that they need. Their blue line's a mess. I mean, that's the biggest problem for me in terms of the job that Murray's done is you can't construct a roster the way that he has that's so top-heavy and so depleted on the blue line. It just it doesn't work. Even you go back to this year with the Nylander pick, I mean, revisionist history in hindsight being 2020, but McAvoy seems like a better pick there. Sergachev seems like a better pick there. Chikrin seems like a better pick there. But they went with Nylander, and, it, you know, at the time – People were kind of like best guy on the board, high upside. His brother looks like he's a real good player, good bloodlines. I get that. But this team, maybe they underestimated how bad they were going to be on defense because outside of risk the line, and there's just not enough there. And you go into the cupboard, and it's pretty bare. And that goes back to him kind of whiffing on these drafts. You look at the, his first draft when he took Reinhardt, you go down the list there, it's not impressive. Right. There's not a lot of late-round finds. There's not a lot of diamonds in the rough. It's just It's all been very top-heavy. And as you've seen... You don't win with top heavy. You win with balance throughout the lineup and depth on defense with a stud. And I think they've got a stud in the rest of the lineup, but they don't have much past him. Yeah, and they also made a mistake, and I don't know who takes the blame for this, but Gooley should have been on this team all year. You know, when Gooley did play here, he was the second or third best defenseman on the team. So it was silly. If anything, it was just a mistake, and these two guys didn't have time to give Gooley a year in junior. And it felt yeah. and it felt like a wasted year for him. It felt like he didn't belong there, you know. At the very least, he he needed to be here, and that was a huge mistake, a huge whiff. You know, Kulikov, I I want to give him a pass on just because I watched the playoffs last year and thought he was one of the best defenders in that first round. Um, I thought that would be better, uh, but they're gone. 
and now it's where do they go from here? And I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Fanboy Pagula makes some Fanboy hires, but um, I guess we'll see. Uh, let's move on because I think there is more exciting things than the Sabres to talk about. Uh, what have you thought? What just, you know, every series is about four games in, uh, give me three or four things that jump off the page, uh, to you about the first four or so games of the, uh, playoff series so far. Chicago being down three, nothing, uh, which I, you know, I think people thought, and myself included, that Nashville could hang, and maybe Nashville would win. I mean, Chicago was a clear favorite going in, but everyone was like, you know, Nashville can give them a test, but I think, you know, majority of people thought Chicago would go through. For them to go go down 0-3 in the fashion they have is shocking to me, really. Uh, I think they were the seventh team in NHL history to be shut out in games one and two at home in wow. the playoffs, which is, which is a crazy statistic. Wow. And from a team that yeah. has the offensive talent that they have, uh, the biggest issue that's been exposed there is that they look old especially on the back end because they are old right they've got too many guys on the wrong side of 30 oduya has been rough campbell's been rough and what you're seeing from nashville is an increased level of physicality which i didn't think they had and i certainly didn't see it during the regular season you're getting contributions from guys like zolnerchuk and watson and sissons in the bottom six which have made an impact and it's young legs I mean, the, the difference makers right now are guys like Arvidsson and Fiala and Aberg. I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's shocking because Forsberg, you would expect, yeah. especially in that game three, when Chicago had the 2 nothing lead going into the third period, all narratives and all history points to them locking that thing down. Right. You know, just put, put, put a, putting a clamp on it, getting back in the series, and, you know, maybe they give up a goal and they win 2 one for, for them to kind of collapse in the third period like they did and then really get outskated in overtime, it's shocking, and I know this team's got history of comebacks to the playoffs. I know in 2011, I was in Vancouver. I watched them come back from 0-3 down to force a game seven. They're certainly capable of doing it, but right now I think there's probably a lot of questions internally for them, wondering what's going on, and can we get back in this thing, and are, do we have bigger problems than we initially thought with regards to our old guys looking really old, and then their young guys not really providing anything. Uh, that's a big one for me. Yeah, and I think they're dead, and you know, and they just – they don't look like they want it as much as Nashville either. And maybe that's a silly thing to say in 2017 with all the analytics we have and things like that, but Nashville just looks – maybe it's just the speed. Speed. Whenever you're faster than the other team, it looks like you're trying a lot harder than they are. Maybe that's not true. You're just going faster. But I don't know. I just It just feels – the energy. There's just an energy from Nashville I don't feel from Chicago. Nashville, Nashville's had more secondary and tertiary guys step up and play better than they did in the regular season. Like I mentioned, like Zolnerchik, I mean, he's been, a, he's been a, like a noticeable player, and he's really just like a fringe NHLer. Right. Uh, Arvidsson, I think, has played like this all year, but now he's on the national stage. People are starting to recognize it a little bit more. So you go down the list, and then you go to Chicago's guys, and it's like Schmaltz is playing worse than he did during the regular season. And guys like Tanner Caro who they expected to maybe give an energy because he's a young guy. He hasn't really done much of anything. So it's, that's where the difference is, is. Chicago really hasn't any surprise guys step up, and Nashville has, and it's really made a difference. So that's the one big one for me. I think uh, the, the Toronto-Washington series has been epic. Awesome. I, awesome. It's been great. Yep. Yeah, it's been fantastic. And it's funny because I did a couple of radio spots prior to that series, especially in Toronto, and the Toronto guys were all really down on their chances. And I was like, I don't understand why you guys are. This is a good matchup for Toronto. Like, they played them straight up in the regular season. 
it's it's a classic off ice narrative of all the pressure against none of the pressure. Right. And I think the one thing that people underestimated was <laughs> Washington's not that good of a skating team. They're fine. They've got guys that can skate, and they overall they're they're pretty quick. But Toronto's going to be the faster team just by nature of the fact that they've got younger legs and they've got more depth down the lineup. And then the one key factor that I didn't really think is that I didn't think a line like Komarov and Brown and Kadri could impose themselves as much as they have in this series. Like they've been a difference making line. Like I thought grit wise and you know and agitating wise they've been able to, but they're also generating, which has made it really tough for the Caps because now the Caps are kind of getting tested with their third and fourth lines. Like, you guys need to step up and provide something. And, and you saw it last night, right? Like, Tom Wilson needs, is a guy that needs to make an impact, having not made that big of an impact during the regular season. So, I mean, I think the big story there is, like, Toronto's arrival has happened so much sooner than everyone expected. And now you're realizing that they're going to be really scary, legitimately good for an awfully long time. And it could come at Washington's expense, which would be crazy, because this team going out in the first round, it would be a disaster in D.C. Like, I don't know what the fallout would be. They have to fix this format, right? Uh, I don't know. I like the first round a lot. <laughs> I mean, this is, no, like, this, is, this is the best. This is the best right now. You like this? This is so good. This is so good, this first round. No, no, because it, it gets bad. It gets, it gets watered down after this. Uh-huh. That's the problem. But the rub is that for three weeks in the first round, it's like can't miss TV. I mean, right. that, that, on Monday night, when all four games went to overtime, that's one of the best nights that the NHL could have entertainment-wise in, like, the history of the NHL, and that's without hyperbole. Like, those games were unbelievable. And you get that in the fir- first round largely because of these matchups, right? The problem is, is when you get into rounds two and round three, you, you lose a lot of these, like, compelling teams, right? Like, if you lose Washington in round one, it's, it's terrible, right? And... You know, God forbid you would lose Pittsburgh early on, right? Because they're fun to watch, too. And, I mean, it seems to be shaping out a little bit better in the West, like, of the matchups that you're going to get. But even there, too, right? It's like Chicago going out in round one would be terrible. I mean, and I, I, don't, I don't love the format, but I do love the first round right now. The, the entertainment level has been off the charts. Yeah, I just, I can't, I just, competitively, it just seems so ridiculous that Pittsburgh and Columbus are playing and also Boston and Ottawa are playing. Yeah, you know that's just. I know. I I I hear you. I get it. I understand. I understand the marketing reasons behind doing it. Like I understand that they wanted a bracket for people to fill out, and I understand that they wanted rivalries in the first round, right? Like you know, I mean, the the crazy part is like Boston and Ottawa. I didn't realize this until we were doing the research. They never met in the playoffs before. Like I just assumed that they had. This is the first time they've ever met in the playoffs. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, you got two teams. They, they got the proximity thing. They're in the same division. You know, and they have no rivalry, really, to speak of, which is strange because I just naturally assumed that they had played at one point, like in the early 2000s. But no, they never had. So I get what they're trying to do. I don't know if you can naturally manufacture it. We're going to find out real quick. But uh, I'll tell you what, the, the X factor here is the players because the louder the players get and the more that they openly criticize the playoff format, that's going to be a problem because then it's going to it's going to kick itself upstairs and it'll become an NHLPA versus NHL thing and we all know how those things can go. You just assumed that they had played in the playoffs. I just assumed Ottawa sucked. How the hell are they going to win the series? <laughs> oh, you don't you don't like Ottawa? I I didn't like the Sabers beat them five out of six times and tied the other one. Like, and that's yeah. probably the sixth time I've wa- the six times I watched them during the regular season, and they look terrible to me. They are a low event 
hockey team with high event players, if that makes any sense. Like, when they, like, you, I don't know if you watched the third period of that game last night, but did, that was yeah. classic, classic uh, Guy Boucher in the third period. Like, foot puck, one forward in, four guys clogging up the neutral zone. And, like, Boston just couldn't do anything with it. And to their credit, they tried every different manner. Like, they didn't just keep banging the nail. Like, they tried a long stretch pass. They tried to flip over the top. They tried to carry it in over the blue line. They tried to dump and chase. They just couldn't get anything going. And that's why I was like, if Ottawa has the buy-in, and they kind of do now because the other X factor there is the, the, the rallying cry stuff. Like, you know, you, you never want to manufacture emotion and stuff like that, but the Craig Anderson thing obviously brought these guys unified, right? Like, right. You know, they, there was something, you know, different in the air when Anderson came back and it was emotional and guys got on board. The Clark MacArthur thing coming back. Yeah, those are like, Clark. like the analytics guys will like rip me for like even contemplating this, but I do believe that those things can be rallying cries for these teams. Remember when Ottawa went on their crazy run two years ago, remember it was Brian Murray was sick and Eugene Melnick was sick. And Mark Reeves, unfortunately passed away. They had all these things going on. They kind of galvanized them. And that's what happens in the playoffs. Cause you talk about it. It's like, there's so much parody and the matchups are crazy, and so many games go to overtime, and so many games are decided by one goal. It's not like you need to badly outplay someone to beat them in a seven-game series, right? You just need a couple breaks to go your right. way and to get some mojo going. And that's often what it is, right? So Ottawa, to me, was always going to be a dangerous team because they had those things going for them. And, of course, they have Carlson. I, I mean, I, can't, I, I run out of amazing things to say about Eric Carlson. I, it's just his ability to stamp his mark on a game, especially on the offensive end, where it's like he can just make the play when other guys can't. Uh, I think it's second and nine. He, he's having such a good series. It's so much fun to watch. Yeah, he's maybe been the best player in the playoffs so far. Uh, I think so, yeah. Sportscaster here with Mike Halford, at HalfordPHT on Twitter. Uh, NBC's Pro Hockey Talk, at Pro Hockey Talk there. Uh, let's get you out of here on this. Two quick ones. Uh, who do you think have been the three best players in the playoffs so far? Give me three guys. Uh, Carlson's been great. I think I'd put him in number one. I think I'd put Henrik Lundqvist in the top three. I Just based on the fact that he's turned it around so remarkably from what was a pretty average regular season. Yep. And, I mean, he's he's been nails, really. That that game, the game two in Montreal when he had 58 shots, I was like, like this guy should be like on an IV after the game. But he came back after that and did play great in the other two games. I'd probably go with someone like Malkin just because of the point totals. I mean, he's just been racking it up, right? So, I mean, that would be the three. Who am I missing? Who? I'm sure you've got someone that I haven't mentioned now, but I just can't think about the top of my head. Well, actually, I want to follow up that Lundqvist point because a few weeks ago, maybe a month now, I had Kenny Albert on this show. And we, yep. were, we were kind of talking about the Rangers. And he said to me, he said that the Rangers put the number 55 on a sheet of, on a sheet of paper and said, Lundqvist is going to play 55 games. And okay. because of that, like we're not going over. He's going to play 55 games. And then we, we believe as an organization, and Kenny bought into this, that he's going to play so much better in the playoffs than he has the last few years because they had been wearing him out in the regular season and he was tiring out during the playoff runs. And I, I just want to say it's played out exactly the way Kenny presented it. So, yeah, and I mean, a big big reason for that is they, they did a really nice job of finding a capable backup, yep. right? I mean, you've seen yep. so many teams. Like, I mean, Boston's a perfect example with, like, they didn't have the right backup. They didn't have a guy that could spell Tuka Rask and Rask. I mean, the fatigue story's been there since we were at the All-Star Game in Los Angeles. 
That was in late January, and they were talking about Rask being fatigued because they couldn't go to a guy. So the Rangers get in Anthony Ranta, and he's able to spell Lundqvist for huge stretches. I do, I, I you know, I, I didn't know about the 55 anecdote, but it makes a ton of sense because you saw last year when they played Pittsburgh, he was out of gas. Like yep. Lundqvist was completely out of gas. And you know what? Now that we're talking about goalies, and I mention it, I think it's crazy that I haven't mentioned two of the best players. I've also been Pekka Rene and Jake Allen. Uh, they probably deserve a lot more yeah. credit than what I just previously gave. I think Rene's been great. Allen has been out of this world. And that's another great story, too, because the guy couldn't have been any lower than where he was prior to Hitch getting fired. So, I mean, it's really, honestly, if you look at it, like, there's some really great goaltending stories going on. And they kind of get overshadowed because there's so many other narratives happening. But Price has been great. But I think the three, I think Lundquist is a special one because, you know, everyone looked at the regular season. They were like, eh. And then all of a sudden, he's just like lights out in the postseason. I think the guy that you didn't mention that I've been thinking a lot about, and everything always has to be about McDavid, so it gets overlooked, but Zach Cashian is playing the best hockey yeah, of his Cassian's life, and he's been great. I mean, he's running yeah, over he, guys. He always had this, he had this right? Like, right, yeah. Like he played in Vancouver. We, he played in Vancouver long enough that we saw flashes, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, we saw the ability to go around and knock guys around but then also have like like silky enough mitts and like like smart enough hockey player that he could be a force offensively in short bursts right the question was was he ever going to put it together and then later as we learned there was obviously a lot of personal issues at play as well with regards to putting it together but i mean he's one of those guys that there's guys that can go into the playoffs and they can affect series in a physical nature but they're not necessarily going to do it with offense he's been able to do both right yep. so he's actually become like a difference maker as opposed to a guy that's just going out there and rattling bones right so yeah that's a good call he's been he's been really good for the Oilers as well do you have a second round matchup that you absolutely like I remember growing up I would look at the brackets and say all right how are we going to get to Colorado Detroit this year because I have to see it <laughs> is there is there a series that you have to see um, well, I mean, Washington, Pittsburgh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's I got to see it again. It was right. so good last year. Like, that's, and can that kind of goes can, without saying. Can they get over the hump, right? It's like, can they? if it happens, is it just going to be more frustration or can Washington? Uh, I would be worried. The way they're not not doing so well with the speed of Toronto, I would wonder how they're going to handle the speed of Pittsburgh. Yeah, I know. I mean, it, it's a good point. I think, I, but I do think, like, Pittsburgh's, you know, if Murray's out, I don't see them making a run without Latang and Murray. And Murray I mean, yeah. Flurry's coming mm-hmm. back to earth in a major way in the last two games. And this is kind of the thing with Flurry, right? Is he's always battled consistency problems. So I think, you know, if we get it, which there's still a pretty decent chance it'll happen, that'll be great. Uh, I'm a West Coast guy too. So like Anaheim, San Jose is, that's a good series. That's a really good series because you've got so many parallels between the two teams. Like, the, you know, you can see, like, Thornton going up against Getzlaff is fun to watch because they're so similar and they're such big guys. And I think that they, they, those two teams just flat out hate each other because they've been rivals for so long. So I think that'd be a good one as well. So those are the kind of two that I would really like to see. And I love that you said that at the expense of McDavid. I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like, you know what, McDavid's going to have a lot of It's always got to be so. about McDavid all the time. It drives me nuts. Yeah, not, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, like, that, that series... Um, I think like everyone's like, oh, that seven nothing game is not going to matter too much. Like they'll be able to shelf it. I actually think that there's there was a lot of things that the Sharks are going to take from that game, including that their power play finally got on track. That I think that they're going to be like, no, I think we got this now. I think we finally figured this one out. I totally agree. You can yeah. find Mike again on Pro Hockey Talk at Pro Hockey Talk at Halford PHT on Twitter. Anything else you want to plug? 
Uh, no, we do some Facebook live stuff every Wednesday. If you go to Facebook, NHL on NBC Sports, you can, we, we do a watch list. It goes about 15 minutes where we answer viewers' questions and everything. So check us out there, too. It's a Wednesday, every Wednesday at 5 o'clock Eastern, Facebook Live, uh, NHL on NBC Sports. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, man. All right, I want to thank Mike Halford, and I screwed up the basketball player's name, right? Yeah, it was Horford. Close yeah. enough, though, if you said it. Don't at me. <laughs> I know, right? The point is is that it would be real easy to, to call him out. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks to Mike Halford for being on the podcast today. Also, thanks to Jane Levy. You can find this podcast and all of our podcasts on our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash sportscasters. You can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher and Podbean and a podcast podcatcher near you. Uh, Twitter, at sports underscore casters or at Don Lake Sports. Email the sportscasters at gmail.com. The Lonely End of the Rink podcast has had two episodes in the last like four days. Uh, SoundCloud.com slash Lonely Rink Pod or at Lonely Rink Pod on Twitter. Uh, today, this morning, Adrian and I did a just split we heard about the Sabres news, and we just reacted to it. Uh, we also did a podcast earlier, a day or two ago, just about the first three or four games of the playoffs in each series. And uh, anytime there's a Game 7 in the Stanley Cup Finals, as soon as it ends, uh, we're going to record a show and get it up as soon as we can. Oh, there you go. Uh, so we're going to try some of the things that you and I experimented with. With the Sabres, With yeah. the Sabres, which we wanted to keep experimenting with, but they stopped going to the playoffs. <laughs> I know, right? All right, my last thing this week is uh, just a little bit of news that really didn't fit into the NHL playoffs or the Sabres, but Dennis Weidman, uh, the defenseman for Calgary now. Was he with Calgary at the time? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, Has been – or he's going to be sued by the official that he hit um, whatever year it was, 2016, January 27, 2016. I don't really have a strong take on this. Um, I hadn't realized. Feels like a money grab to me. It does a little bit, and and that's my first thought because he wants ten point two five million dollars. And weren't they like kind of cool? After it happened, I'm not sure, but he hasn't uh, refed another what do we call it, whatever linesman does. He hasn't, he hasn't done another back, game huh? since. Really? So because of concussions or. Uh, they have a list of things here. Injury to the neck requiring surgical intervention, injury to the back, soldier injury, pain, numbness, uh, injury to the right knee, shock, uh, anxiety, and depression. That's a tough one to argue or prove. Headaches, permanent or partial disability, and there's something longer written down there too. But Man, the league's going to hate this. That's because tough. The, the, isn't the counter – Weidman's going to say, I was concussed, right? Right, and I that's what I was what going I was... back to. I. I was almost surprised. He got suspended for 20 games just based on a black and white rule. That is, like, if you touch an official, Right, they just games. kind of didn't – they then, just kind of let it go. They just used, okay, you touch an official, you get 20 this. games. They didn't really get into it. He appealed it and got 10. Right. But they did just – they did the ruling. They did the appeal. And that's kind of where this was left. Uh, I'm sure we talked about it. And it looked to me like in the video, like he was confused. Like, yeah. On the play. So I, It's so out of character. Just in right, general. I mean, right. you just don't see that. But it is tough because the NHL, is is he suing 
is he? I, mean, I think he's suing Dennis Weidman in particular. Oh, and the team. Uh, which is I would tough. think you'd make as many plaintiffs or defendants as you can. Well, that's what. Uh, right. I mean, what was the? I just saw a note from. Keep talking for a second. Oh, he, Paul Stewart, the yeah. former referee, said my advice for him would be go for the throat, the wallet, and the vault. His career is done. So yeah, I mean, I I kind of take back my initial reaction because I didn't realize his injuries. If he can, if he's got permanent injuries and can never ref another game, then. I guess he has a right to that, even if Weidman maybe was concussed. But it is going to open a can of worms, like as far as... And it's like, okay, so let's say you're a wrestler and you do a moonsault and you break your neck. Yeah. The the, the organization you're wrestling for has a responsibility to you. Sure, yeah, for sure. You know, and I think the NHL has a responsibility to this official. Yeah, I would agree. You yeah, know, that's, like, why, I think that's what I would hope. Why, like aren't the NHL, the NH- why isn't the NHL putting him in a position where he doesn't have to doesn't think want about to sue. suing. Yeah. No, I, uh, that's a great point. I totally agree with that. If he got hit with a puck, the NHL would be doing something about it, I would guess. You know, if he took a puck to the face and could never officiate And worse, again. he got hit by a confused, concussed player. Right. It's going to be ugly. Oh. Wow, I feel bad. I'm sorry I even questioned him. That was my first thought, because too, Because I just I didn't realize. Yeah, I didn't realize. It hasn't even been back on the ice. Whew. Man. One last thing for me today. The NFL draft is next Thursday, right? Yeah, one week from today. And on this very podcast next week will be Chris Burke. We're recording Monday with Chris. And Chris is the draft expert at SI and a good friend of this show. And the first thing I'm going to want to talk to Chris about is running backs. Because to me, this draft is unbelievably interesting because of running backs. And nobody drafts running. Like, there's not a lot of value placed on running backs, but I, I know what you're saying. Yes. And the most interesting thing about the entire draft is Joe Mixon. Yeah. So, Leonard Fournette. So, okay. So, here's a just a generic ranking. Leonard Fournette, one. Dalvin Cook, two. Christian McCaffrey, three. Alvin Kamara from Tennessee, four. And Joe Mixon, five. That's a generic ranking from USA Today. Really? They have both running backs, one, two. They're that talented. This is a running back ranking. Okay, okay. All those guys are running backs. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, But Joe Mixon would be no worse than two if he didn't punch a girl. And it's so fascinating. Two or three. He's better than the FSU guy? Yes. Okay. Especially based on how the FSU guy tested. Okay. The FSU guys had a bad draft season. Combine and everything. Yeah. Okay. Um, But he would be no worse than two. And he might be better than Fournette. And he's certainly more versatile than Fournette. Fournette is a violent mix of speed and power. He is going to catch a ball, or he's going to get toss sweep left and look to run you through the ground <laughs> on his way past you. You know, he's maybe he's maybe Adrian Peterson, maybe. Sure, as a yeah, that's Peterson. Right? Yeah. And then... Christian McCaffrey is like Reggie Bush. Okay. You know, he's not going to run between the tackles much. You're going to use him a lot in the passing game. There's going to be some offensive coordinator that's like, I want to do some stuff with this guy. And Dalvin Cook is in the middle. Okay. More a typical running. Right. Now, Joe Mixon is a little bit of all of that. He's big. He's fast. He has great hands. He's he is the most talented player 
to play at Oklahoma since, since Adrian Peterson. Peterson. Yeah, you've said that and before the incident. The incident isn't what I want to talk about right now. Okay. The incident, what I want to talk about right now is that happened, so now what do you do? Okay, yeah, that's what I was going to say. You know what I mean? Okay, so you don't want to specifically get into the incident, but right. how what long do you, do you punish you a guy? Now? Right. What, where, and, and specifically in a draft sense, not, uh, you know, does he have a right to play? Does sure. he? But strictly in terms of 32 teams in 32 separate war rooms trying to decide when names come off the board and get picked. How many running backs? What do you do with Joe Mixon? How many running backs went in the first round last year? It was like two, right? Two, yeah. So he would definitely go in the first round. I think if he never punches a girl, he's a top ten pick. Yeah, that's tough. Where does where does Philly pick? I know I'm putting on a spot with all these questions because I heard you know that's all the clickbaity titles, but like uh, the title I saw from somewhere was Philadelphia might draft a guy that punched a girl in the face, like. Well, all thirty-two teams might draft a guy. Who well, right, him. someone's going to you know, draft him. Someone, he's not going to go undrafted. And yeah, there's probably. I here's my guess. There's probably five teams who have him completely off the board. There's five owners who are saying, "No way, not here." And then I bet there's five owners who say, "I don't care about it at all." Okay. And then everyone else is confused. Yep. And not sure what to do. That would be my guess. Is that the is this the worst PR? I know the one guy was it the day of or the day before the draft? No, it was the day of the draft. The guy I think Miami ended up picking eventually. Tunsil uh, mm-hmm. got like stepdad sent pictures of him. Yeah, Miami. Pot. He went to Miami yeah, with the mask. All like, of a sudden, him and the mask. While the draft was going on, this comes on, and also like allegations that he's being paid by coaches at Ole Miss. Right. So that hurt his stock a little bit. Who did but- you want to know about the Eagles? Yeah. They're 14th overall. Okay. So, I mean, that was. I think that every NFL team knows they can't pick him in the first round. I think there's a perception that. Do you think it's almost unspoken? Like, we just. You can't sell it. We can't take him? Yeah. I think everyone's going to be like, I can't sell. I can't sell to my fans that. But if you go past the first round, like, I say as soon as pick 33, he's in play. Yeah. And there's no way he goes past the third round. Somewhere between the first pick and the second round and the last pick in the third round, someone's going to take Joe Mixon. This mock draft has him going 29 to Green Bay. I mean, that's a perfect fit for him. I mean, not personality-wise, but a team that maybe is just a really good running back short of doing whatever they want to. Like it, they're They're so good everywhere else. I think too, if but... you're the Saints and he's there at 32 and you killed that 11th pick with a great defender, how do you not pick him? Yeah, <laughs> that's that's really tough. It, it is one of those things like is there an unspoken he's, nobody's going to pick him? He's a six-foot-two version of Darren Sproles. Yep. It, it will be interesting to see because we – is a stupid mistake. This is a little. This one will have people protesting and stuff. What you know? would you? What would be your reaction if, with the second pick, the Bills own they pick Joe Mixon? I don't know. I I've, I'd be excited for the talent. I guess which is such a shit thing to say, like from a human level. But it, we've talked about this before. Almost as an NFL fan, you have to check your 
some of your morals at the door a little bit because these guys are all not shouldn't say it that way. All teams have guys with flaws. And we've talked so, about how complicated this specific thing is too. Like I bet I've come on the side of mixing more than anyone in America maybe. And maybe I maybe I've went too far with my support of him and I can hear my daughter from here. Yeah, of course. You know what I mean? Yeah. I can hear her from here. And I Man, I'd be pissed if he punched her in the face. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And, no, I know. And, but, I know. But it's also like... I hate the NFL for that kind of... I like, don't know what you do with a human being the rest of his life right, after just that never, happens you either. never let him play? You can never earn a living? I mean, this is the thing that Joe Mixon... This is the best thing for him to do in his life, is to play football. It's the best possible earning capability for him. Yeah, play football. There's nothing else you could possibly do and make more money. Speak out against it, maybe. Like, just be a model citizen forever. It's just such a fascinating thing. I think when McCaffrey's on the board, it's going to be tough for him to be picked because there's a lot of similarities there. And I think people will just say, let's just take McCaffrey. It's There's no headache. Put it this way. Everyone... That had, I'm just looking at NFL.com. Okay. The four mock drafts that are all on this one table yeah. all, all have McCaffrey going in the first round, and they all have him going before Mixon. Right. I think it would be impossible for Mixon to get picked when McCaffrey's there. So I think there's just too many similarities that – And every every guy has Fournette going to Jacksonville, so he's not going to fall far. Yeah, Fournette, Fournette, if he doesn't go to Jacksonville, he's probably going to Carolina. Okay, Um I know this is the one last thing, but real quick, since we might not get to it or people might not listen to the next podcast before the draft, right? what do you want the Saints to do? I want them to pick the best available defenseman at 11 and Joe Mixon at 32. Okay. Yeah, for the Bills, I think I want them to move down. I want them to acquire more picks. I think they they need help at more areas than one. I don't think that there's... I mean, what are they going to do? Are they going to go wide receiver or something there? I've heard this guy has them taking a quarterback there, which would be crazy because then you're just telling uh, the guy you just signed that we're not going to help if you. If you look at the four mock drafts on NFL.com, obviously Jamal Adams is the jumps out, right? Like For the Bills? That guy's got to be dream- – Daniel Jeremiah really thinks Jamal Anderson could be – or Jamal Adams could be available at 10. Look where everyone else has him going on. Right. Yeah, that's crazy. Two, seven, and six. Six, yep. Yeah, I heard there's another safety, too, that uh, people like. But, yeah, I mean, the Bills, I think, just got to go best available. I think they're a decent enough team to want to try to contend soon. Someone said this, pick players, not positions. I think that's so right. Yep. You know, pick players, not positions. And I think for the Saints, at 11, pick the best defensive player available. And then pick Joe Mixon at 32. Man, would I do a backflip.